is a mother. She lives in Darlington, Maryland, and is the mother of eight children. Except for a few interesting experiences, she's like any other mother across uh, North America, so whether that's Canada or the U.S. And one experience was unique, was so unique that John Hagee put it in his book, How to Win Over Worry. It goes something like this. She came home one afternoon from the grocery store and walked into her home, and everything looked pretty much the same, though it was a little bit quieter than usual. She looked into the middle of the living room, and five of her darlings were sitting around in a circle, exceedingly quiet, doing something with something in the middle of a circle. So she put down the sacks of groceries and walked over closely and looked and saw what they were playing with. They were playing with five of the cutest skunks you can imagine. (laughs) She was instantly terrified, and she said, Run, children, run! Each children grab each child grabbed a skunk and ran ran in five different directions. She was beside herself and she screamed louder, more frantically with great gusto. It so scared the children that each one squeezed his skunk. As the writer put it, skunks don't like to be squeezed. You know, sometimes we idealize experiences of motherhood. But the reality of motherhood can often be much different than that. You know, uh, mothers know that motherhood isn't a fairy tale. I mean, it's got its moments of joys, but it also has its trials. I remember my brother giving my mom a Mother's Day card once, and on the front it says, from your pride and joy. And when he opened it up, it said, not to mention your trials and tribulations. Because <laughs> amidst the joys of motherhood, it's often, it often comes with great challenges and often frequent emotional pains. And a lot of the things I share today will have some bearing on fatherhood as well. Some won't, but some will. This morning, I want to take a look at six short and unique vignettes out of the book of Genesis. Uh, Each of these mothers in Genesis shows that that motherhood in a sinful world can have its trials. Motherhood in a sinful world can be uh, full of pain at times. So let's begin by looking at the first mother. So we're going to be looking at faces of motherhood. And let's begin by looking at the first mother this morning, and that's Eve. Now, Eve was the only mother in all of Scripture who actually knew what it was like to live in a world without sin. She she knew what the joy of open relationship with God. She knew the joy of walking in a pristine garden with no weeds and beautiful, and the animals, and, and the butterflies, and the colors, and, and, and she, she knew the joy of that. She knew the joy of, of open fellowship with her husband, with no shame and no barrier between them. And then sin came into the world. And we know that with sin comes problems. And so God judges sin. And what he does is, I'm not going to, I don't have time to look at the whole thing, but, but there's a few verses where God judges sin. In verse 14 uh, of chapter 3, he puts a curse on the serpent, and he says, you're going to crawl on your belly the rest of your life, and so on. And, and that's likely very much on the physical serpent that, that the devil had possessed. And then we see at verse 16, he talks about, uh, to the mother, he says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. We'll get back to verse 15 in a moment here. But uh, most of you mothers here today, uh, I know there's the odd mom I've met who doesn't seem to have all that much pain. It's, it seems like a rare thing. But most moms that I know of, I hear some of the descriptions of pain. And, uh, but I thought this picture kind of summed it up pretty well. Just, ow! Uh, for a long period of time, and a long period of time, and a long period of time. Uh, and I thought that was the best uh, picture describing the pain of giving birth until I found this one. During labor, the pain is so great that a woman can almost feel what a man feels like when he has a cold. <laughs> That's, that's not true. Men, <laughs> we milk it too much, and uh, we have no idea of the pain uh, that women go through in giving birth. 
to, to children. And yet that came as a result of sin in the world. There was another thing that came as a result of sin, and we're going to look at that. But before I want, I want to give a bit of context here, because the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden wasn't just a serpent. We know from other passages of Scripture that it was the devil. And one passage that tells us that is Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, where it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, puts all... all the terms together, who deceives the whole world. That's what the serpent did in the garden, came to deceive. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And so I want to look at verse 15 here, because many scholars see in this what is called a proto-evangelium or a proto-evangel, proto meaning first, evangel meaning gospel, that they see here uh, a reference or a prophetic word of the gospel. And so we see, and I will put enmity, this is the judgment out of verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So this is speaking to the serpent and the woman there. There would be obviously hostility that would come there. And between your seed, your offspring, and her offspring, again, still maybe still speaking of the physical serpent. But then comes this verse, and it says, He, singular, will bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And, and many, many scholars see that this is an early prophetic word prefiguring the, what Christ is going to do on the cross when he, when he actually disarms the principalities and powers, although he himself is bruised. He is, he is actually killed, but he's raised from the dead. It's a heel wound. It's not fatal, but he, he, deal, he deal, deals a crushing death blow, in a sense, to the enemy, and yet we still know that that's going to be worked out in the course of history before the before serpent is finally thrown into the lake of fire and so on. But, but it's this battle, it's this cosmic battle between good and evil and the forces of good and evil. And I want to keep this in mind as we go through the, the, the vignettes in Genesis because we're going to see some pretty gruesome things in these vignettes because sin has now come into the world. And because sin has come into the world, it affects motherhood. It affects fatherhood. It affects all of life and the pains of that. And I want us to see some of those things that, that come from that. After he pronounces judgment, God kills some animals and he clothes Adam and Eve and he casts them out of the garden. Now, personally, I believe this is a prefiguring of God covering our sin uh, because he kills animals, the blood is shed, he covers us, and, and next chapter right away we get into them offering animals for sacrifice. I don't think that's man's idea. I think that God somehow instructed them in what needed to happen there, uh, and so on. And so what we see here is that they're cast out of the garden. And then we're told man had relations with his wife. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she gives credit to the Lord for this. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And this actually, in a sense, is fulfilling part of that promise and that she would have offspring. And so then she has another son and gives birth to his name as Abel. And I would think in their early years as they were growing up, that Eve experienced all the joys of motherhood. You know, that newborn baby, and you're looking at the fingers, and you're looking at the eyelashes. And Do you remember those moments as parents? Now, as grandparents, we're re-experiencing it again. We have one granddaughter who's amazing, and two more granddaughters to come, uh, just in June and October. So we'll have a house full of girls. But I'm reliving parenting through the eyes of my kids. And it's, it's awesome. Uh, and enjoying all of the joys of grandparenting, where you can love them and spoil them and then send them home when they need to go home, right? Anyway, so, so I can imagine her watching them play. And, and we're only told about these two boys. Likely they had other sons and daughters. And another passage indicates that later on. And so as, as these boys are growing up, they probably learn to work with their dad and, and learned, you know, shepherd becomes, I mean, Abel becomes a shepherd and Cain becomes a farmer and, and they grow up. And then they come to bring offerings to the Lord. And there's different perspectives on what these offerings are. Is it, was it that uh, Abel uh, brought 
really good quality sacrifice, and Cain's sacrifice was inferior? Was it because Abel brought a blood sacrifice, uh, and Cain's didn't bring a blood sacrifice? Was it Cain's attitude that was bad? Uh, there's different uh, views on this, but that's not my purpose this morning. The, the issue is, is that God accepted Abel's sacrifice because he brought it faith and he brought a right sacrifice, whatever that issue was. And God accepts his sacrifice, but he doesn't accept Cain's sacrifice. He shows regard for Abel's sacrifice. Now, how he did that, we don't know, but we could perhaps conjecture because there are at least five times in the Old Testament where God sends supernatural fire to show his approval or his action on behalf of that sacrifice. And maybe that's what happened in this passage. We don't know. But somehow, both Cain and Abel knew that God had accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. And so Cain gets angry. He starts to pout. And in his pouting, he's like, and God comes to him in his grace and mercy. He says, Cain? He says, Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, if you do the right thing, won't your countenance be lifted up? But if you don't do the right thing, sin is crouching at your door. It's like a tiger or a monster crouching at your door. And if you must master it, but if you don't, it's going to master you. And Cain doesn't master his sin. And what he ends up doing, he lets his anger and his jealousy fume. And he ends up killing his brother. Now, if you were the mother, if you were Eve, how would you feel? Your firstborn son kills your secondborn son. And all of a sudden, the devastation of sin comes. Now, some of you mothers here today, and fathers... You've lost a son or a daughter. And you've experienced the pain of a child dying before you died. How many know that that's one of the things that none of us wants to happen, that any of our kids would go before we go? And yet some of you have experienced that. Some of you this morning, you've had a child who's made some bad choices like Cain. Now, maybe he's not a murderer, or she's not a murderer, but but you would be ashamed of some of the choices that your son or daughter has made because of sin. Maybe there have been immoral choices. Maybe there's been crime. And so some of you moms, as you come to Mother's Day, Mother's Day also has some pains for you. But I want you to remember, there's a seed... (laughs) that can conquer. He shall bruise the serpent's heel. And in the meantime, we're going to see the devastation of sin coming here. And God, even in this life, God wants to give evidences of his grace for you even now. And so even though you might be suffering... God wants you to see his goodness even in the land of the living and give you evidences of his grace. And this is what happened to to Eve. Because as the passage goes on, it says, uh, and through all this grief, and actually, let me just mention this. Eve probably lost at least three kids in that moment. Because Abel was killed, Cain was banished, and he took his wife with him, which at that time would have been a sister, And so Eve would have been separated from his son and a daughter and probably children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren because they live so long. Um, Maybe you have experienced the pain of separation from a loved one. And yet God has some mercy on her. And we don't know how old Cain or Abel were when they uh, killed, when one was killed. But, and they had other sons and daughters, but at this moment, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, means appointed. And this is what she said, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. 
So she's getting some comfort that God has provided someone else for her. And I don't know how God will will give you grace at this moment in your life, but I believe God has moments of goodness for you in your life at this point too, if that's something that you've experienced in pain. You know, what I realize is oftentimes when we teach about on Mother's Day, we give all the ideals of motherhood, and then we forget about some who suffered the pains of motherhood in our midst. And I thought I would do it a little bit differently today. So, now that brings us to the next two mothers I want to look at together in combined form. And what we see here is these next two vignettes. Let's first look at Sarah. God gives a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. But there's a problem. Sarah is barren. (laughs) And that's a major problem. And it's interesting to note that all the wives of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, uh, were initially barren. In Jacob's case, it was Rachel who was initially barren. And, um, you know, they wanted to have children, but they were unable to. And there are some here this morning who you've experienced that. You have experienced barrenness. You, you, you long to have children, and yet you have been unable to. And I think of um, a couple when I was pastoring in Saskatchewan, and this couple had reached their 40s, and they had hoped for children through their years, and they were unable to have children. And finally, it got to a place where this was likely not going to, most likely, not going to be a possibility. How many know that girls play with dolls from childhood up looking for a day when they're going to have a baby? And then as they get older and they anticipate marriage, and a, a dad wants, a man wants to be a father, and a wife wants to be a mother, and they get married and they're unable to have kids and unable to have kids. And you know, there's pain in that. That's part of, part of the fallen world that we live in. And they came to a place where they grieved the death of a child. They had never had a child to die, but they had to grieve the death of a dream. Because their whole lives had been built, had they built up this dream. And so sometimes you have to grieve the loss of something you've never had. And the expectation of society and family and, and, and a posterity and all the hopes and dreams of playing and all those types of things. And they went through a grief process. And I remember that. And as they came out the other side, they said, we're going to invest in the young people in our church. And they said, if we can't be physical parents, we're going to be spiritual parents. And they were. They were the greatest parental people we had, in fact, he went and bought a 15-passenger van just so he could cart kids around. They had kids into their house. He was faithful and consistent, and they invested in that. Well, you know, in our day and age, adoption is an option. And back in the Bible days, uh, they didn't have, they may have had that option, but one of the things that they had an option based on cultural law at the time was surrogate motherhood. And uh, when we get a little bit further into the Bible, we're going to recognize the Bible contains a lot of stories, and it may not make any approving comments on those. And then the Bible will teach other places where it's clear teaching. And so we're going to be looking at accounts of polygamy and and a few other things that happen. Uh, And here's the issue. The Bible contains those accounts, but whenever there's clear teaching on marriage, it would disapprove of that. And we'll see some of that in some subtle ways as well. And so here she, uh, in this particular case, Sarah has a servant. And if, if we won't take time to read the passage, but, but Sarah basically says, hey, I've got Hagar. She, I picked her up in Egypt. And Abraham, well, why don't you go into her and I can have a child by her because she's my servant and that child can be mine. And so that's what happens. And so the story kind of changes. And, and so Abraham goes into Hagar. And then in verse 4 it says, and, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And so this all of a sudden changes the circumstance in the relationship. I mean, she's in a disadvantaged position as a servant. Yet this could be advantageous for her. We don't know if she was consulted in the matter or not. But uh, Elizabeth Fletcher writes about this particular situation, and she said, ancient people assumed she would leap at the opportunity 
For a woman in Hagar's position, the prospect of becoming pregnant to the leader of the clan was an honor and would result in a dramatic rise in her social status. No longer a slave, she would become an important concubine or secondary wife, definitely a step up in the world, at least in the culture of that time. Again, the culture that the Bible reflects isn't necessarily the Bible's endorsement on that culture. And so things change between Hagar and Sarah afterwards because now Hagar starts to flaunt her pregnancy. (laughs) Hey, look at me. I was able to do it. (laughs) You know? And so Elizabeth Fletcher writes on this a bit more, and she says, Sarah was daily confronted by the other woman's success at conceiving a child and believed that Hagar no longer gave her the deference she deserved. I mean, now she's... She's kind of asserting her position. Look, I've provided a son or a child for him. You haven't, right? And Abraham would be all excited about the prospect as well. And so for her part, Hagar may have enjoyed being treated with respect for the first time in her life and did not bother to hide her pleasure. Well, Sarah gets angry at Abraham for this whole situation. And he, begin, and, she, and he says, well, she's your servant. You can treat her however. And she begins to mistreat Hagar so harshly, in fact, that she flees. And she flees and she's on her way to Egypt. And while she's there and, and suffering from this mistreatment, in fact, the Bible says she was afflicted by Sarah. And while she's at this well, the angel of the Lord comes to her and sees her in her distress. Now, here's a servant girl being used by a more a, a very wealthy couple for their purposes. But how many know God cares for the servant girl, too? And he shows up to her, and he tells her, I want you to go back. Wow, why would God say go back to that situation? And the reason probably is, is because that would be a place, a source of provision for her and for her child until the child was old enough. And then, and then he says something else. You're going to have a son. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> In other words, he's going to be a pretty tough one to handle. How many would like to raise a boy like that, you know? <laughs> And everyone's hand is going to be against him, and his hand is going to be against everyone else, and so on. But I'm going to make a great nation out of him, too. How many know God has a plan there, too? Even though this was, uh, 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 in, in a sense, Abraham and Sarah's means to fulfill God's promise, it, God uses sometimes our mistakes. And so as it goes on, she called the name of the Lord Elroy, the God who sees. I want you to know God sees you in your affliction. God sees you in your trial. God sees you in your struggle. He saw this servant girl. She goes back, and, and as the time goes on, uh, time goes on, Ishmael grows up, and the time came for Sarah to have a child, and that's what this passage talks about. She conceives. She's 89 years old. By the time she's 90, she gives birth. Verse 4, or verse uh, uh, Abraham, let's see, uh, called the name of his son who was, verse 3, born to him, whom Sarah bore to him Isaac. He circumcised him. And then as you go on to the next passage, Abraham was 100 years old. Now that's quite an old age to have a child. <laughs> and Sarah was 90. Now, can you imagine, can you remember your joy, if you're a mother here this morning, of having your firstborn child? And it's just like the pain's over, the child's in your arms. This is the most lovely thing in the world. You know, dad's there, he's beaming, his buttons are popping, you know. <laughs> and, and whatever's happening there. And imagine if, if your whole life this was a dream and it was a promise of God and at 90 years old you gave birth. Imagine the joy over the top. And so here she is, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me will laugh with me. <laughs> Can you imagine that? 90 years old, I've got a baby. Right, amazing. And he said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? I mean, nursing a child at 90 years old. That was a joyous time. But that joy was overshadowed by having Ishmael in the house. Ishmael was in the house, and, and they have a party for Isaac when he's weaned. 
And when he's weaned, I mean, they're enjoying that all the time. And, and yet, while, when they have this party, Isaac, uh, um, excuse me, Ishmael mocks Isaac. And Sarah sees it. And she goes, that son, that boy is not going to grow up with my son. And so she tells Abraham, she said, drive this maid out and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my own son Isaac. She's disinheriting him, disinheriting him. And so, so here's the thing, is that he's going to be driven out. Now this grieves Abraham because this is his son as well. But what happens is he does it. And God, he, he talks to God. God assures him that everything's going to be fine with Ishmael. He's going to have his own nation. Uh, heed your wife's advice. And so he does. And he drives out Hagar. He, he gathers up some bread. He gives her a skin. This one shows a water pot, but it was a, a skin of water. And he gives it to her, and they wander in the wilderness. Uh, it says they wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. I don't know why she didn't make her way back to Egypt like she was the first time, but they're wandering in the wilderness. She runs out of water, and now it's really desperate. And so she leaves her son to die. And that's what what this account is about. She leaves her son to die, and her son is crying out to God. She she goes a a bow's throw away, like if you were to shoot an arrow. She walks out far away because she doesn't want to hear her son and see her son die. She cries out to God, and God shows up again. God heard the lad crying, and the angel of uh, God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where you are. And she tell, he tells him, you know, go get the lad, and promises again a nation, and get, shows them a well of water, and, and so on. I want you to know, some of you this morning are single mums. For all intents and purposes, Hagar is a single mom right now. She has no means of support. She's been cast out of her home. And she's a single mom. But God sees her. And God has a plan for her. And God has a plan for her child. And so as a mom this morning, and you come, and and whatever the circumstances are on how you became a single mom, and some of that might be very hurtful, I want you to know God sees you, and God has grace for you, and God can provide for you, and God has a plan for your son and your daughter. Very important as you come to that. That's an aspect of motherhood that is very common today. Over half marriages end in divorce, separation, or annulment. Over half of the kids who, in fact, some places it's way higher than that. I knew one school that was 80% of the kids came from single-parent homes. And there are moms trying to make ends meet and work and fight and, and plan for their kids. I want to tell you, God cares for you, and he has a plan for your life. Notice God's grace in his life, in her life. That brings us to, uh, that's God's provision, and she's able to, provide water for her son, and they're able to. Actually, he then becomes an archer in the wilderness. She sends for a wife from Egypt. He gets married, and uh, so on. Uh, He becomes a great nation. But that's a sideline to the story, because the line is going to go from Eve through Sarah is the promised child. Now we get to Rebecca. This is one vignette I had to drop out because I just don't have time this morning. <laughs> and so I knew that in advance, that I would have to cut it out. And, and Rebecca, the thing with Rebecca is that she marries Jacob. I mean, excuse me, she marries Isaac. And Isaac and Rebecca have two kids, Jacob and Esau. And the reason I need to at least include her a little bit here, although there's many lessons we could learn from her life, she was quite the manipulator and we could learn how not to do things. But she also had a heart for God. She had heard God's voice, and she was wanting to make sure certain things happened. But she has a horrible relationship. You don't see dialogue with her and Isaac. And there's all sorts of things that are going on in this story that we could talk about. But what I want us to mention, just to note this, is that they had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob is the one through, that God chooses through whom his line would come. And he's the younger one. And so now that brings us to Leah. 
Because Jacob ends up having to flee because Esau wants to kill him for stealing the birthright. Not the birthright, for Esau despised his birthright and sold that. But he stole the deathbed blessing, (laughs) deceived his father, and put on animal skins. And and that's quite a story in itself. And he has to flee. And he goes back, he goes to Haran to find a wife. And while he's there, he ends up meeting with family. And there's two in the family, two young maidens in the family. One is Leah, one is Rachel. And he negotiates a bride price with Jacob. In fact, he really gives a great bride price for her because in that culture, uh, it was only one. um, It's very interesting. Now, let me just give a bit of background here before I get into this. We're going to see a marriage with polygamy in it. It's very interesting. This was common practice in the culture, all the cultures of that day. In fact, if you want to uh, read an interesting book, it would be by Robert Outler. Uh, he's an expert in Jewish literature, and he authored the book, The Art of Biblical Narrative. And he writes that there are two institutions that were universal in ancient culture. One was polygamy, and one was primogeniture. Polygamy had to do with multiple wives, and that was practiced back then. It's not saying it's right, but that's what was practiced. And primogeniture was that the firstborn son would be the main heir inheriting most of anything. Now, the issue is, though, that the Bible subtly undermines those cultural practices. Because in every case, if you read the account in Genesis, in every case, it's not the firstborn son who gets the blessing or the patriarchal line. It's a younger son. In every single case. Also, every time it gives an account of polygamy, it shows the family dysfunction and the tension and the conflict and the favoritism and the fighting. And, it, and so it's, it's subtly undermining this as a means of, of, of marital practice. There's, there wreaks havoc in the family. There's an absolute disaster in every way, and you will see that in absolutely every polygamous relationship in the Bible. So what happens as we read through this passage is he comes and he finds these, and I'm going to skip through the passage to speed things up here a little bit. But here's what happens. There's two daughters. Rachel is the younger, but she's a stunning beauty. The Bible says she's beautiful in form and in face. In other words, she's got a great figure, and she's stunning. Jacob is head over heels for her. And he bargains to work seven years for her. Now, from archaeology, we know that 1.5 shekels was an average salary per month. The average bridal price was 30 to 40 shekels. Jacob could have easily paid for that in in two to three years of work. But he offers seven years. (laughs) He's really offering a big price for her. He's, he's, yeah, she's worth it <laughs> in his mind. Now, we know from Jacob's past that he's quite the con artist and deceiver, but Laban is his match, and Laban deceives Jacob. He works seven years, and when it comes to the wedding, Laban does a switcheroo on him. And this is made possible because the bride is kept heavily veiled during the wedding day. So there would be the procession from the home to the place of the ceremony. There would be the ceremony. There would be this huge feast that lasts for hours. The bride is veiled this whole time. And then finally the groom takes the bride into his tent. Now we don't know exactly when Laban switched his daughters, but somewhere along the line he switches his daughters. And so Jacob goes to bed with whom he thinks is Rachel, and he wakes up with Leah. And this is quite... A story. You got to remember, there's no electric lights in that day. Perhaps there was drinking during the wedding uh, feast as well. And he ends up making love to a woman that, not the one he thought she was. And Jacob the deceiver has been deceived. And when he asks Laban, What have you done? Why have you deceived me? Laban says, Our custom is to marry the older daughter first. Well, regardless of the custom, this is still fraud. He didn't disclose. The, the grounds for this, and they, this probably could have been even contested. But, but Jacob doesn't make a big stink about it. And I think partly it's this. He just realized what happened to him he had already done. He had disguised himself as his brother. He had gone to his near-blind father and lied that he was Esau. 
And his father even felt him and said, Is this Esau? You sound like Jacob, but you smell like Esau. It's quite a statement. (laughs) And he lies. Well, the same thing just happened to him. Clothing was used to trick him. And it's going to happen again with Tamar. It'll happen again because Joseph's coat is going to be spilled, torn and spilled with blood, and it's going to deceive Jacob again. This deception that's going on in these biblical accounts. And so we can, we can feel for Jacob, but Leah's life is shattered. I mean, he works for seven years, um, and he thinks he's marrying Leah or Rachel. He wakes up with Leah. And, and we think, wow, you know, poor Jacob. Think about Leah. In contrast to Rachel's stunning beauty, the Bible says Leah had weak eyes. Literally fad, fragilized. It's not saying she had poor eyesight. The comparison here is in comparison with the beauty of Rachel. Maybe she was cross-eyed or something. She, but she wasn't beautiful like Rachel was. She had grown up, even though she's the older sister, she had grown up being compared to Rachel her whole life. And Rachel was a stunning beauty. Leah wasn't, and that's why he has to unload her the way he does. Leah's the ugly sister and unwanted. Rachel is, the, is beautiful and desirable. And so because of ancient custom, Leah is forced into a marriage with Jacob, a man whom she knew loved her sister. Wow. How would you feel? <laughs> Leah's broken. And you see this as she gives birth to her first children. She's longing for the love of her husband. I mean, there's the disagreement. I guess I should have flashed ahead there so you could look at them. But now, as we take a look at this passage of Scripture, her first kids outline her emotional turmoil. Now, the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb. The Lord saw she was unloved. God's going to help her out. So Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Second son. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. Third son. She conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me. He'll love me now. Each time she's having children to earn her father's, her, to earn her husband's love. Wow. And then something changes. Something changes. And she has a fourth child. And this is what changes. No, no, no mention of her husband. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing kids. Something happened in her heart. She, she is no longer desperate for the love of her husband. There's no mention of her husband with the, uh, uh, with the birth of Judah. This time it's different. I'm going to praise the Lord, and she names her son Praise. You know, perhaps you're in an unloved relationship, or you've not been graced with stunning beauty. Don't try to build your identity and your meaning and your purpose on that foundation. Children are valuable. A husband is valuable. But your hope and your love and your meaning first have to be in the Lord. Judah, I will praise him. That's where you're going to get your primary love and you'll have something to give. That's where you're going to get your primary identity. It's interesting that Rachel is the favorite wife of Jacob. But it's not Rachel that God chooses to pass the family line on. It's the ugly, unloved sister that God chooses is going to be through whom the patriarchal line will go until the Messiah comes. And I've got to quickly rush this. (laughs) I'm in my same position as I was last time. And that brings us to Tamar. Because Judah ends up making some bad choices. 
And there's a lot about Judah's life I wish I could talk about. He's a fascinating character. And in the end, he redeems himself by offering to be in prison in the place of Benjamin. And, and he ends up becoming the line through the king and a number of things. And the other older brothers are disqualified for a number of reasons, which I don't have time to share. But Judah ends up going, the Bible says, he goes down to among the Canaanites. He's going to visit an, an Adulamite friend named Hira. He's hanging out with non-Christian guys. And he sees a Canaanite girl there, and he takes her. It's very strong language. And he ends up marrying her, and they have three kids. And the first one was named Ur. The second one was named Onan. The third one was named Shalah. And the course of time comes that he arranges a marriage for his oldest son, Ur, with a, a woman named Tamar. But Ur is evil. It says, uh, verse 7, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Now, I don't know what he did that was so evil, but he was evil, and God took his life. Where did he learn that? Probably from the Canaanites. They were immoral. They practiced child sacrifice. They were ungodly people. They were idolaters. And so so Judah, now, based on the law of the the levirate marriage is that if a son dies and he doesn't have a child, then the next brother in line is to marry that woman and the first child will be raised after the son so that that son has an inheritance. And so Onan is supposed to go in. And Onan, uh, in fact, that becomes law later in the Bible. I won't take the time to share all that. Um, But Onan goes in and he spills the seed. He doesn't want to raise up a son after his brother. And God kills him because he sees the disrespect and dishonor. And now Shelah is the next son, but he's not old enough yet. So God, so, uh, so basically, Judah said to his daughter, you know, remain a widow, and when Shelah gets older, then you can marry him. He forgets about it. He gets old enough. His wife, uh, Shua, dies. Tamar realizes that he forgot to give, him, give her his other son, And so she plots, and she thinks, well, he's been widowed now for a season. He's going to visit his friend, the Adulamite. Maybe she knew of his past practices and the temple prostitution and whatever, but she dresses as a temple prostitute. And she ends up catching his eye, and he goes in to her, and the the price was, you need to give me a goat, a kid. The kid goat, and he doesn't have it, so he leaves his identification marks with her. His rod, which would have been customized to how he would have known it, he left his signet. Maybe it was a ring, maybe it was a signet seal. Whatever way, they were, they were identifiers of who he was, and until he could send a goat. Well, he tries to send a goat, she's nowhere to be found. So he forgets all about it until three months later he hears that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. And he says, she deserves to be burned. You know, he dismisses his own casual sex, and then he's going to burn her. And in the end, um, to make a long story short, I've got to speed this up here, she comes out and she shows the identifica- these IDs. It's like photo ID. Here's the father of my child. And he realizes she's more righteous than he because she was more concerned about a heritage for her son and even for Judah than Judah was concerned. And you go, what a story. Why would that story be put in the Bible? I'll tell you. Here's why. Several things. One is it's a total contrast to how Joseph handles temptation in the next chapter. Two, it introduces Judah because Judah later on is, there's something that starts to happen in Judah's heart and he changes and he does become later on something worthy to be a king and it's through his line that that things are going to pass. Well, what happens if she gives birth to two sons? And you can see this uh, here at the end. So it talks about Perez and his brother Zerah. Why is that important? Because this is the line of Christ. The seed that was to come through all of this trial of problems and turmoil and motherhood was going to come through this family line. Jesus came through a very sinful line. (laughs) Although his father was holy and he 
it was his mom that's the, that uh, is the human in the situation. But we want to see that it followed the, the regal line. You get to Matthew chapter 1. It says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's connected to the two most important people in the Old Testament. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And the line goes down through, and we introduce several other women in here. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, who was also a harlot. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, who was a Moabitess. And Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was father of Solomon by Bathsheba. Are you getting the picture here? Mankind needs redemption. Motherhood needs redemption. From the fall of man, sin came into the world, and the promise would that a seed would come that would crush the head of the serpent. And as we finish off this passage, you look at Tamar. uh, Obviously, these ones get bypassed. Tamar and Judah comes Perez, Salmon, and there's Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. And finally, we get down to Jesus. And there's a verse that says this about Mary. She will bear a son. There's the seed of the woman. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, born by the Holy Spirit, coming upon Mary, so that that child would be holy, but it's the seed of the woman. Jesus, grows up, goes to the cross, dies for your sin, dies for my sin, pushes, puts his head, his foot on the head of the devil and disarms the principalities and powers. And he redeems mankind so that now when someone dies, death, where is your sting? Victory is in Christ. Now when someone is immoral, there's forgiveness and power to change. Because the Holy Spirit can come and live in our lives. Now when you pray for your kids. Now when you have emotional pain. How many know he also took our sorrows and he bore our griefs? And as we wrap up and the the musicians come to close, and I come to close with prayer here. Motherhood has been redeemed. The pains of motherhood have been redeemed. And my prayer this morning, as you've been able to walk through this journey and these vignettes, that somewhere along the line, there's a story that you've been able to identify with. And I want you to know that God's grace is sufficient for your story. God's grace uh, is sufficient for you as a mother, for you as a father, for you as someone who maybe isn't a mother or father here. But Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he had to come. That's why he had to come. And he came to save his people from their sin. But if you look at that, what you will see, there's a gospel in the genealogy. And what you'll see, the gospel extends to both men and women. Do you know women in genealogies? That was not heard of in a patriarchal society. Four women are mentioned in that genealogy. Because Jesus came for both men and women. Not only that, the gospel includes both Jews and Gentiles. All four of those women are Gentile women. And the gospel embraces sinners. Anybody qualify? We qualify, don't we? So God has come to Mother's Day to save moms save their kids to redeem us from the curse let's stand let's pray thank you Jesus Father as we come to the end of this service we're overwhelmed how you can take the evil of men and work it for your good God, in spite of even 
your holiness and your moral standards, how you worked with broken men and women. And through the story of history, how you brought it to the place where Christ could be born in the fullness of time. And there would be this amazing gospel in the genealogy that encompasses men and women, that encompasses Jews and Gentiles, that encompasses sinners, because every one of us has sinned. And we thank you that the seed has come and he's crushed the head of the serpent. And that's still to happen. I know there's still some outworking of that. And even as Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. (laughs) And Father, I pray for the moms here this morning and Lord that you would heal the pain of some this morning who who have experienced the pains that we've pain of loss pain of some who have experienced the pain of barrenness some who've had to die to hopes and dreams some whose kids have made bad choices Father may you show yourself strong in their life and Lord you are sufficient for them and you have a purpose for them and a purpose for their children And God, we entrust them to your hands. This precious Mother's Day, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful Mother's Day.